and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. We always start with a little trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that future we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. Just as a quick content note, this episode includes discussions of both sex and abusive behavior, so adjust your dial accordingly. Okay, let's go to the future. This episode, we're starting in the year 2033. You are about to complete the Ubic Unesco training module. At the end of this module, you will be completely unable to deceive yourself in any way. Before we begin, please read the privacy and efficacy policy carefully. This program is completely voluntary. Changing your brain comes with some risks. Once you have read and agreed to the policy, tap the center of your screen three times. Excellent. Let us begin. Lay on a comfortable surface with your legs uncrossed. Place your phone in the center of your stomach or chest. Feel the weight of the device gently pressing down through your body, down into the earth. Look up. Notice how the ceiling above you looks. Is it flat, one unified plane of color? Is there texture? How does the light fall? Now pick a spot on the ceiling, a small spot the size of a quarter, and focus. Pull all your focus into that spot. Relax your feet, your legs, your abdomen, Relax your hands, your arms, your shoulders. Close your eyes and feel your mind lifting you up towards the spot on the ceiling while your phone holds you softly, firmly down. Think of nothing but the idea of that spot. Let it expand to swallow your entire mind. Let your mind look right and left, and in every direction, it is all the same. An endless plane of possibilities. Here in this mind, there are no tricks. No traps of any kind. This is the mind we are going to build for you now. This is where you will live, free from your own deception. Free from letting yourself believe things you know not to be true. In this mind, you will never again fool yourself into giving him one more chance. In this mind, you will never again trick yourself into believing that you deserved that promotion. In this mind, you will never again convince yourself 
that your potato salad is better than Maria's. Yes, I know about Maria's potato salad. In this mind, you will see the world exactly as it is. You will be clear and unfettered by your own self-deceptions. Are you ready? Excellent. Now, let us really begin. So in this future, you can turn off your brain's ability to trick itself. You can no longer fool yourself into thinking that you can totally still make it to class on time, even if you sleep just a couple more minutes. You can't trick yourself into thinking that your abusive boyfriend is a nice guy and just needs to be saved. And you can't con yourself into thinking that you totally deserve that promotion when maybe you actually didn't. You have probably deceived yourself before. You probably started doing it when you were really young. When I was like three, I was just staring at a brick wall, talking to it. And they were like, Jackie, who are you talking to there? And I was like, Mr. Ghost. This is Jacqueline Gill. I'm an assistant professor of paleoecology at the University of Maine. Jacqueline is also one of the hosts of a podcast about climate change called Warm Regards. But before all of that, she was a kid. And like a lot of other kids, she was scared of being alone in her room at night. So there's this weird sort of progression of monsters or ghosts. Like first the ghosts would come through that would get you if they heard you make a noise. And then the ghosts would come through that would get you if they saw you move. And then the hardest part of all were the ghosts that would get you if you moved or made a sound, right? And so you can imagine like just this kid laying in bed just stiff with terror, you know, waiting for that moment when the ghosts would finally come. So she enlisted the help of her friend, Mr. Ghost. I think I just asked him for help. He, he was like, well, I can program your bed to protect you from these monsters. The headboard of my bed became something like a control panel, like what you might see on, you know, on Star Trek. The bed could essentially have a force field, which was incredibly useful because that solves the problem of the ghosts being able to get you when they come through your room. Uh, the problem, though, came very quickly when I realized that sometimes I had to go to the bathroom. And so after some discussion and troubleshooting, Mr. Ghost and I came up with a solution, which was, all right, so there's a camera and it's going to film you sleeping. And then what we're going to do is we're going to project a hologram of you in the bed from that recording and also basically do the equivalent, equivalent of a Romulan cloaking device. Um, so you'll be invisible when you leave the force field of the bed. But this only lasts for 60 seconds because, you know, even, even then as a child, I knew that there were limits to technology, right? Now, Mr. Ghost wasn't always around watching Jacqueline. He had other kids he had to help, too. And so once he set up the board, um, the headboard, it was up to me. So I had to learn the technology. I would push some buttons uh, for recording, and then I'd push a couple more buttons when it was time to, like, jump out of bed and activate the hologram. And the funny part is, so I moved around a lot as a kid. My dad and my stepdad were both in the Navy, so I was often bouncing back and forth to different places. And any time I got to a new bed in a new place, uh, he had to set up the, all the technology again. So I'd have to sort of call Mr. Ghost. He'd show up program the headboard again, and then I'd be safe. As adults, it's easy for us to forget that even though this kind of sounds cute and funny, the monsters and ghosts and imaginary friends that kids have can feel so real. 
it felt incredibly real to me. I mean, my heart would race, you know, when I knew the ghosts were in the room. And, uh, you know, even like running to the bathroom, like I was, I was counting down in my head the seconds, you know, I was like running really quickly, um, you know, peeing as fast as I could and kind of getting back. And then it was like this a palpable relief of nothing can get me. I'm safe now. This kind of thinking, this magical way that kids can build fictional worlds to help them get through scary or strange situations, it doesn't really last. Jacqueline can't quite remember when exactly Mr. Ghost stopped showing up for her, but it probably happened slowly, like with all the rest of her imaginary friends. I remember like feeling this sense of guilt that a long time had gone by without my thinking about them, you know, and sort of kind of promising to myself I would never forget these friends. Um, I don't know why I'm getting a little bit emotional. <laughs> it seems really strange, but um, yeah, just the sense of like, oh, I forgot about my friends. And, and then I'd feel badly about that for a bit. And then like, you know, longer and longer stretches would go by. And um, eventually you just sort of stop thinking about them altogether. When you're a kid, these can feel like real relationships. So losing them feels like a real loss. Today, Jacqueline doesn't think about Mr. Ghost all that much. Unless some nosy journalist like me shows up, I guess. But she does hope that Mr. Ghost is still available out there somehow, if she ever needs him. You know where I do think about it is if, if I ever have a child of my own, sort of passing that on to them. Sorry, I don't know why I'm crying. This is so weird. I think he's, you know, like he's he's out there. And, um, you know, I like to think that other little kids who might need that could also have that in their lives. Jacqueline grew out of her monster fear phase. Or maybe Mr. Ghost just moved on to help other kids. But this is probably one of the first ways that most people really engage in large-scale self-deception, inventing stories that feel true, that we really believe about ourselves and our world. But we don't always just grow out of those stories as we get older. Beth Duckles spent 20 years of her life thinking that she was allergic to peanuts. At some point, um, I, I started to have stomach aches and... My mom took me to the, to the doctor, and they said, well, you know, what are the allergies in your family? My father's always been allergic to peanuts, and he's the kind of guy who has an EpiPen that he takes with him and, and, and uses um, when even the smallest amount of trace uh, allergies or peanuts are there. So they started to take me off of peanuts, and they also at the same time had me not eat milk or eggs, and apparently my stomach aches went away. I got asthma around that time as well, and so um, it sort of turned into that I was allergic to peanuts, and people asked me, well, what happens when you have peanuts? And I said, I don't know, I think it's asthma. And so then it turned into, well, if I eat peanuts, then I get an asthma attack, which I'd never really experienced, but I thought, well, that seems to make sense. Around the same time, a little girl in Beth's school died from exposure to peanut oil, so the parents around her were extra on guard about peanut allergies. And so I got that red tag that said that I had peanut, a peanut allergy. And that meant that, you know, everybody was really conscious. Nobody wanted to put anything in the room that had peanuts in it. When I would taste peanut butter, I would spit it out and then take my inhaler. <laughs> Halloween would come around and, you know, I'd give away all of my peanut candy. And um, so I, I never knew what a Butterfinger tasted like. I never knew what a Snickers, you know, tasted like. Um, I'd happily trade, you know a bunch of Smarties for, like, a couple of Snickers bars or something. 
20 years later, Beth developed other allergies and finally went to an allergist who did some tests. And he did the, the skin tests and that I'm, I'm not at all allergic to peanuts. Not allergic to peanuts. Not even a little bit. So once you learned that you didn't have this peanut allergy, did you go out and, like, eat a bunch of peanut stuff? <laughs> like, what did you do? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, it was a little scary, I have to say, because, you know, I used to think it was something really I had to really avoid or I didn't, like, I tried to not sit next to people who are eating things with peanuts. But I, I sort of, like, tentatively tried a few things and, and thought, okay, well, let's see what it tastes like. Uh, first thing I tried was a Reese's, Reese's, uh, Reese's cup because I thought those were cool. Today, Beth is a sociologist and a writer, and she still has friends who think that she's allergic to peanuts. I had a, um, a dear friend who's known me for a long time, and, and he knew me as a kid, and so he knew I had a peanut butter allergy, and we were together, and I think it might have been like one of those West African peanut soups, um, somebody was serving it, and he saw that I was about to take a bite of it and just went running across the room and said, Beth, that has peanuts in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's okay. Turns out I'm not allergic. And just the look on his face. Beth says that this whole thing kind of freaked her out. Not the Reese's peanut butter cup or the peanut soup, but the fact that she could spend 20 years of her life truly believing something about herself that was completely untrue. I, 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 had, a, I had a small existential crisis, to be honest, after it happened, because I, I was... I mean, I really had believed myself to be somebody who was who had a peanut allergy like that. That was just part of who I was. And then, you know, it was probably never actually there to begin with. This may seem like an extreme example, but I'm sure many of you have had moments where you realized something you believed about yourself was simply not true. For the longest time, I thought that I liked running. It turns out I actually do not like running, but I felt like I should like running. For this episode, we're going to call this kind of broad concept self-deception, which is sort of a slippery term. Self-deception is, is hard to define only because people have different definitions of self-deception. This is Zoe Chance, an assistant professor of marketing at the Yale School of Management. And one of the things that Zoe has studied is self-deception. All that's important is that there's a false belief and there's some motivation for that false belief. It's not just a mistake that we're making. It's something we'd like to believe. Actually, studying self-deception is pretty hard because most of the time we don't know we're doing it. We can't put somebody in a brain scanner and have the brain scanner tell us, oh, this is the other thing that they really believe. So we just look for signs um, and we can test people's behavior. Zoe has done some really neat experiments in the lab that demonstrate the power and persistence of self-deception. We have people come into the lab and we give people a sort of like an IQ type or SAT type math quiz where they answer 10 questions. And we tell them that this test that they're taking is a practice test. She also tells people that after this practice test that they're about to take, they're going to be asked to predict how well they might do on the real version. Now, half of the people in this experiment get a regular test, but the other half get a test that has the answers accidentally included at the bottom. Either they have a cheat sheet that they can look at or they don't have a cheat sheet that they can look at. Now, maybe this says something not so flattering about me, 
But I was really surprised that people with the cheat sheet didn't always just give themselves perfect scores. It's not like everybody gets 10 points the first on the first round, even though they could with the cheat sheet. It's more like they just score a little bit higher by one or two points than they do without the cheat sheet. Once they're done with the test, Zoe asks each group to predict how well they will do on the next one. And she adds an incentive. If your prediction is accurate, you get a little bit of money. The strongest evidence that we have that they're self-deceiving when, of course, they've cheated on the first test, is when they predict that they're still going to do just as well on the second test, even if we pay them to be accurate on that prediction. So even though they knew that they would not get the answers on the next test, and even though they knew that they looked at the answers while working on this test, people who got the cheat sheet believed that they would do better than the people who didn't. On average, the cheating group predicted that they would get an 81% next time. And the non-cheating group predicted that they would get a 72%. Having the answers provided made people feel more confident in their own abilities. And that confidence didn't pan out. When the two groups took the next test, they performed equally. Then Zoe did a follow-up to see how long that self-deception lasted in people who got the answers to the test. Okay, so people deceive themselves and they think that they're brilliant and that they really didn't need that cheat sheet at all and they would have done just as well without it. But then they get their actual score. They take a second test and they get their actual score without the cheat sheet. Once you have that information, do you still think that you're brilliant or um, do you quickly come down to earth and reconcile with reality? So they had the next set of subjects repeat the process several times. First, they got the cheat sheet, which overinflated their confidence. And then they took the test over and over again without the cheat sheet, predicting each time how they thought they might do. And what we found was that by the fourth time, people were pretty well calibrated, but it actually took that long for most people's uh, self-deceptive optimism to diminish. So even though you've gotten your answer, say, on the first round, even though you find out, all right, I thought I was going to do a lot better, but actually I didn't, I guess you tell a story to yourself like, oh, well, this test was harder than the previous one. So how am I going to do on the next one? I'm still going to do really well. I'm going to do better than I did this time. We have to face hard reality multiple times to let go of our self-deception. Not only is it tough to bring people back down to reality, Zoe also found that it's really, really easy for people to self-deceive again. For some of the participants in the study, Zoe gave them the cheat sheet again for the third test. And immediately they self-deceived again. So not only is self-deception sticky, it's really easy to, um, to recur. So basically, we're all just waiting for an opportunity to overinflate ourselves and you have to drag us back down kicking and screaming. But that's just in the lab, right? And we know that a bunch of undergraduates don't necessarily act like the rest of us. But there are so many examples of self-deception in the real world, too. Everybody, some people listening are going to hate this if they hear it, but everybody who is investing in individual stocks themselves is being self-deceived because there's so much evidence that stock picking is not viable. But we feel like, yeah, but look at, look at these people that succeeded and I could do that, right? And I'm interested in stocks and I'm a smart person and I know about business, 
But research shows that even the top stock pickers on Wall Street, top performers in one year, aren't the same as the top performers the next year and the next year and the next year. So when we look at other people's success, especially in a domain like that, a lot of it was luck, but we believe we can replicate their success by our intelligence or expertise, and we can't. One thing I was thinking about, this is like kind of out of left field, but um, I feel like I was talking to somebody recently about people who say like, oh, well, I could do that when they see somebody do something that they almost certainly could not do. And I think about this a lot with like art, where people are like, you know, when you go to a museum, people are like, well, I could have painted that. I wonder if like modern art would be much more respected because people would recognize that like they couldn't have done that. That's hilarious. And I love that connection. And it's so true. And I'm definitely guilty of walking through modern art exhibits in galleries and museums and feeling like I totally could have done that because you don't see the conceptual labor and expertise that went into it. All you see is the physical thing. And even the physical things, a lot of times, actually, no, we really couldn't do that at all. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I never do this. I never deceive myself. I am clear-eyed and totally honest with myself all the time. You're lying. Sorry, but you are. We all do this. And honestly, a lot of people getting married, right? Like, you know, divorce rates are so high. <laughs> divorce rates are so high, but you couldn't imagine that that could possibly happen to you. And we go to each other's weddings and we're so excited and we all imagine that it's going to last forever, happily ever after. And then we're shocked when it doesn't. But if you really want to hear about all of the ingenious ways that we deceive ourselves, the best place to go is a therapist's office. And that is where we are going to go after the break. So I'm sure that some of you are still thinking that you rarely, if ever, engage in self-deception. You're not in denial about anything. You're not cheating on tests and pretending that you didn't. But the sneaky thing about self-deception is that it comes in a million different forms. So I'll give you another example from my life. One of the ways that self-deception pops up for me is through anxiety. Sometimes I get into these really anxious moods and convince myself that all of my most paranoid thoughts are totally going to come true. When in fact, there is no evidence at all for any of them. And one of the healthier ways you might go about dealing with that kind of self-deception is by seeing a therapist. Hi, my name is Shamin Ajan. I am a psychotherapist. I specialize in sex therapy and I'm the owner of Shamin Ajan Psychotherapy. It's a small boutique uh, psychotherapy practice in Brooklyn Heights, New York. And I'm also the author of Seeking Soulmate, Ditch the Dating Game and Find Real Connection. In Shamin's office, she sees people fooling themselves in all kinds of ways all the time. So I think dating is a really interesting um, uh, lens to kind of look at this through. And I've spent a lot of times working um, with clients who deceive themselves in all kinds of way or ways around dating. An example I might give, um, kind of a general one, is a woman who might be in a relationship with a guy who's known to sleep around with multiple women and cheat on the ones that he's dating, that woman might have two thoughts. One thought is uh, Jimmy and I are exclusively dating. The other thought might be Jimmy is a player. So you have these two conflicting thoughts and to resolve that inconsistency in thoughts, she might lie to herself and change the thought that he's a player and do it in a way that is acceptable to her. Instead thinking, Jimmy's not a player. He just hasn't found the right girl until now. Jimmy and I are dating, and yes, he's a player, um, but he can change. Um, he spends a lot of time with me. 
um, except for when he's working, which is often. And he told me he's falling in love with me. And by doing that, adding those additional thoughts, you then can trick yourself into believing that no, Jimmy is not a player or he used to be a player. He's different with me. Me and Jimmy are solid. He's not cheating on me. Again, most of the time, people don't know that they're doing this. Most people aren't consciously saying, okay, well, I know Jimmy's cheating on me, but I'm going to lie to myself and tell myself that he isn't. It's a lot more subtle than that. It just kind of happens in the background. Now, I'm going to bet that there are still a handful of you who are thinking to yourself, no, Rose, I have never done any of these things. I am as pure as new fallen snow. Well, I have bad news for you. Have you ever taken a medicine of any kind? Well, then you've deceived yourself. If you give someone a sugar pill, yes, there will be a placebo effect. But if you give someone Tylenol, there will also be a placebo effect. And separating out what's the drug and what's the placebo effect is nearly impossible. This is Eric Vance, a science journalist and the author of a book called Suggestible You, The Curious Science of Your Brain's Ability to Deceive, Transform, and Heal. And and these are chemical responses. These aren't like you know, psychological self-delusion necessarily. These are, you can track them, you can measure them, but they're triggered by our own expectations and beliefs. So on the one hand, they are very mental. On the other hand, they're, they're also very physical. Most people think that the placebo effect is something that just happens when you're given a sugar pill and told that you're being given medicine. But it actually also occurs when you're being given, quote-unquote, real medicine, too. You watch these commercials, and you can see it. You know, they're, they're full of these images meant to, you know, boost your placebo response. You know, images of, like, stomach medication, you know, and it's like the red-hot flaring stomach, and the blue comes down and, like, puts out the flyer, and it makes the person feel better, right? That's very powerful imagery. And it's, it, one of the things it does is it triggers our placebo response, creates expectation. The one that always blows me away is uh, Parkinson's disease. If you give someone... Uh, a pill, you can expect maybe you know, 15% better movement. But if you give them uh, a fake surgery, so you basically make an incision somewhere and tell them they had a surgery, but they, they really didn't. They just had an incision. Uh, it's called sham surgery. You can get like 25 or 30% uh, more movement, which neither of them are real. It turns out that some people are actually more susceptible to placebos and other forms of suggestion than others. Just like some people are easily hypnotized, while others are much harder. And that suggests that there is something going on between people that impacts how readily they might be able to self-deceive. There's some really great, like with placebos, there's some really interesting genetic work going on saying that, well, certain genes that regulate things like dopamine um, do seem to make... Maybe not a person, but like a thousand people more suggestible and more placebo prone than another thousand people who don't have that. Um, and they found 30 genes. If we could, you know, turn those dials, turn maybe someone who, who was suggestible and just, you know, but just playing with their brain, brain chemistry into maybe someone who's a lot less suggestible. You could, you know, the idea would be to turn them all the way down for everybody so that we no longer... Basically, what we see is what we get. Is that what you're saying? That is exactly what I'm saying. So what if we could do this? Well, first, medicine of all kinds would not work as well. You'd lose the placebo effect that shows up in both pharmaceuticals and in alternative medicines. But you'd also lose what's called the nocebo effect, side effects or pains that people truly feel even if there's no biological reason for them. The question is, would you have more or less 
sickness in the world. Are these beliefs telling us, are they mostly telling us we're feeling better or that we're feeling worse? My sense is we're telling ourselves we're better. I mean, we all like to be happy. We all like to be healthy. I think we'd see a lot more sickness, in the, small sickness especially, in the world. I was raised in Christian science, which may, there may be some hand of God in there, but there is a lot of placebo in Christian science, in my opinion, you know, having grown up in it, and there's actually several former Christian scientists who study placebos now. For those who aren't familiar, Christian scientists believe that sickness is not a biological thing. It's an illusion that can be cured by prayer. All of, all of those people would no longer feel benefit. Well, they would feel less benefit um, from, you know, from something that had really, it's a really central part of who they are. So all of that would go away. Now, we should be careful here, right? Because sometimes people with very real medical issues are told that it is all in their head, when in fact it is absolutely not. And that kind of response is disproportionately leveraged at marginalized groups. But often, people who can't find relief using only pharmaceuticals or Western doctors do find relief elsewhere. And all of that stuff, both pharmaceuticals and the other healing practices, would not work as well. Suddenly, there's none of this. Everyone is popping pills and simply working on what we know works. And if, you know, if they have a disease that's not recognized by... Um, by medical science or there's no treatment, they're basically out of luck. There's no, there's no other options. Now how do you think that affects the global health? But it's not just drugs that would become more impotent. Do you want to talk about sex or do you not want to talk about sex? You know, looking at your partner, you know, like imagine if there's no story you could tell yourself. There's no, you know, like you, it's just every little thing was exactly how it is. Um, boy, I'd, I hate to think about how my partner would see me. <laughs> Yeah, so I think it was Helen Singer Kaplan who said that uh, sex is all about friction and fantasy, or fantasy and friction. And fantasy, by definition, is not based in reality, right? So if you take away this ability for us to deceive ourselves, we turn off that ability to fantasize. Generally, people tend to think of self-deception as a bad thing. But Shimin says that sometimes self-deception can be good or even essential. If you have an event that you have no way of knowing what the outcome of it is going to be or if you're going to be successful at it, and I, I want you to think in terms of like a job interview or maybe a first date or becoming a parent, um, you might tell yourself there's no better candidate for the job or I'm going to be the best dad in the entire world. Um, and this type of self-deception really helps you to cope with those feelings of anxiety and vulnerability. Self-deception can also be a crucial coping mechanism for people in really difficult situations. So the thing that, you know, comes to mind for me, because I do work with a lot of survivors of childhood sexual abuse, is um, someone, a child, who might be um, in a home uh, with a parent who's sexually abusing them, um, and maybe they've told the other parent that this is happening and nothing has changed, um, and the child then has to figure out a way to cope with this impossible situation. And so you respond to that by lying to yourself, essentially. It's not that big of a deal. My parents really care about me. They wouldn't do anything on purpose to harm me. I'm imagining it. Um, or if you have a parent telling you that you're lying, you then take that on. Maybe I am lying. I am lying about this. I made this up. 
And without being able to do that, that child's not going to really be able to survive, to function in the real world. They can't go to school and uh, learn fractions or interact with their peers while their world is crumbling around them. In fact, there actually is a population already that is terrible at self-deception. Something that's been tested a lot, and there's very robust evidence, is that actually depressed people are the least likely to self-deceive or have these positive illusions. And in fact, depressed people have a pretty accurate idea of their own abilities. That's Zoe Chance again, the Yale professor. Um, So overall, like, I think it would actually be depressing if people... It would be depressing, and I guess people would be depressed, maybe, if we had a clearer idea of how great we really are compared to how great we imagine ourselves to be. I think it would probably increase my business. (laughs) But I think maybe an unintended consequence of that is the people who aren't taking this truth pill or shot or tablet or whatever... um, would be left with hope. They would be left with optimism and they would be left with faith. We need to have some confidence to be able to take risks. And a lot of the successes in life are dependent on us stepping up and taking risks. And if we really knew um, how low our chances were, of success, then we wouldn't become entrepreneurs, we wouldn't apply for jobs, um, we wouldn't ask people out. (laughs) There are lots of things that we wouldn't do if we didn't have some degree of self-deception. And this brings us to the $10,000 question. Would you do it? Would you take the pill or do the therapy or whatever it is to turn off your own self-deception? No, I think I would be quite depressed if I did. I'll keep self-deception. If I have a choice between who I want to be, this self-delusional person or this sort of really clear-eyed person, I'll take the self-delusional one every day of the week. Like, that's who I want to be. (laughs) Oh, this this question excites me because I think think if the truth pill had an on-off thing, if if it was not just a one-time thing, right? If you take the truth pill for them for the rest of your life, you have awareness. If, if it was, if, if it was time uh, released and only lasted for a certain amount of time, yeah, I probably would take the truth pill. I might want to see what it's like. I might want to see what that experience is like. But if I had to live with it forever, no, absolutely not. What about you listeners? Would you turn off your ability to deceive yourselves forever? Or do you want to stay in the warm, safe world of Mr. Ghost and his fantastical holographic bed? I think I pick Mr. Ghost. That's all for this episode. If you like Flash Forward, you might also want to check out the podcast Science Versus. Science Versus is a podcast made by a friendly team of nerds that will blow up your firmly held opinions and replace them with science. Are you wondering whether you should drink detox teas like Insta-celebs? Or whether you should believe your drunk uncle's rant about gun control? Science Versus has an episode for that. Recently, they looked into the so-called bee-pocalypse. What's killing the bees? Is it really pesticides, or is it another suspected whodunit? Here is a quick taste of that episode. 
I didn't. I never thought of base poing. I've got to be honest with you. To be fair, it's normally pretty liquid anyway. It's uh, it's not like uh, like human poo. And then, so what does bee diarrhea look like? Well, so it, it's much the same as as bee poo normally, except it's full of parasites, which then you know can contaminate the nest or flowers or whatever. So if you liked the Flash Forward episode about a future without bees, definitely check out that episode for more on what is going on with our buzzy, fuzzy friends. Check out Science Versus. That's Science VS. You can grab it anywhere you listen to podcasts. This episode of Flash Forward is supported in part by the podcast Physical Attraction. Physical Attraction is the podcast that explains physics one chat-up line at a time. For my lovely American listeners, a chat-up line is what we would call a pickup line. Like, for example, are you emitting light in the visible spectrum because you are unusually hot? From interviews with experts through apocalyptic scenarios to the latest developments in physics, the show explains complex topics in a simple and engaging way. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit the website at physicspodcast.com and follow them on Twitter at physicspod. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Evelyn. The intro music is by Asura and the outro music is by Hussalonia. The voice of the future for this episode was Cynthia Graber. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. This idea actually was suggested by my mom. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that too. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. If financial giving is not in the cards, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice review. Or just tell a friend about the show. That really does help. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.